flush the loo next time, maybe ask yourself, are we wasting one of the most precious and increasingly rare elements on Earth? Not to get too scatological here, but phosphorus is enormously important. It sustains all life forms on the planet, and without it, we wouldn't be able to feed billions of people every day. Amongst other things, phosphorus is found in human waste, but it's a finite resource and we're running out. At the same time, and this is where it gets strange, stick with me, excess amounts of phosphorus are choking the world's waterways. This is what's known as the phosphorus paradox. And to tell us more about it, I'm joined now by Dan Egan. Dan is a journalist in residence at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's School of Freshwater Sciences and the author of The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance. Dan, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Let's start with the basics. What is phosphorus and why is it so important? Well, elementally, literally, phosphorus is is an element that's found in every living being, every living cell on the planet and and maybe the universe. It's critical in, in many of our biological processes and it's also a critical fertilizer for modern agriculture. And we've been using it to great effect for the last hundred years but we're on a path that probably isn't sustainable because we rely on phosphorus found in rock deposits and those rock deposits as any deposits in the mining industry will do they're diminishing and that's where we're at and as you mentioned at the same time we're using it so i would say heedlessly in some ways that it's it's fertilizing toxic algae blooms in water instead of growing crops like corn and Mm. soybeans We'll come to the phosphorus paradox and uh, modern issues uh, in a bit, but first I want to get into the history. Phosphorus is, is in a lot of things, including our bones and our teeth. How was elemental phosphorus first discovered? Well, it was uh, basically conjured by an alchemist in Hamburg, Germany, in I believe it was 1669. Wow. He, he was on the hunt for the mythical philosopher's stone, that magical substance that could transmute base metals like lead into precious metals like silver and gold. At the time, it was believed that all metals were evolving toward this kind of precious state. And that process could be hurried along if we could only find the substance that was driving this. That's the philosopher's stone. It doesn't really exist, but a lot of people at the time were consumed by finding it. And and this alchemist in Germany, Hennig Brand, uh, believed it could be derived from the human waste stream. So he basically cooked it out of his urine. Because the, the important thing to understand is that phosphorus, elemental phosphorus, doesn't exist on its own in the natural world any more than a styrofoam cup would. It's always bound with oxygen atoms to create phosphates, which is how humans typically interact with the element and phosphates are the nutrient that I was just talking about. Elemental phosphorus, that's the devil's element. And it's called that because it is so volatile. So this guy, this alchemist in 1669, it took him weeks of, of, of intense cooking and a lot of alchemical hocus pocus, but he eventually derived these waxy nuggets that glowed in the dark. They were phosphorescent. Um, and they were captivating, but but they didn't come without some peril. 
And that is that when they warm, when elemental phosphorus warms just a tick above room temperature, say 80 Fahrenheit, uh, they combust and they burn at an intensity that's really hard to comprehend. So he didn't find gold. He was he was chasing after gold, but he did find arguably something more important. And that is he isolated the substance upon which every living cell on this earth depends. The phosphorus that he discovered, as you say, is so potentially combustible. You write about one poor Baltic beachcomber who learnt this the hard way. Can you tell us the story? Yeah, well, Hamburg, coincidentally, uh, is is really central to this whole story. So uh, Hamburg was the place where phosphorus was first discovered. And it was really just a curiosity for, for more than a century. And eventually, as humans are wont to do, they, they figured out a way to weaponize it. And eventually, uh, in World War II, after the the Allied forces got back on their feet or got into some planes and were able to respond to the Blitz, they started bombing Germany with uh, reckless abandon. And they targeted Hamburg initially. They wanted to see if they could burn a city down, and they pretty much did. And they did that with bombs that were loaded with phosphorus. There were some other incendiary bombs, but basically the British figured out that you don't destroy a city with conventional weapons by trying to blow it to smithereens, you destroy it by burning it to the ground. And so that's what happened to Hamburg in, in, the 19, in 1943, July 1943. So these, these bombs kind of look like modern fireworks. There's these globules drifting from the sky, trailed by smoke. The difference between phosphorus bombs and fireworks are that these globules will burn anything they hit with a ferocious intensity. And that, I mean, when I say anything, I mean like an apartment building or a person, whatever they hit, they, they burn right through. It's, it's really a weapon of terror. So <clears throat> Hamburg was hit with a lot of this, this phosphorus weaponry, but not all of the bombs obviously hit their target. A lot of them hit the water. And so what happens, I mentioned earlier that the stuff is stable. It has just kind of a a haunting glow until it gets too warm and then it explodes. But when it's in water, it's stable. So the beaches around the Baltic coast, not far from Hamburg, and the banks of the Elbe River are to a significant degree littered with this stuff. And it looks remarkably like amber. And amber is a very precious uh, gem and popular in in that region because it used to be a, millions of years ago, it was a, a pine forest. And so all the resin from those trees has has turned into amber and, and phosphorus nuggets look a lot like amber. So people are hunting for amber and they too often mistakenly pick up nuggets of phosphorus. And yeah, I do open the book with a gentleman who was beachcombing on the Baltic coast, not far from Hamburg. And he... Um, thought what he thought was found was not amber, but a piece of fossilized oyster shell, put it in his pocket and his leg exploded. And uh, he ended up having to go into the water to, to put it out. But if he came out of the water, it would flare up again and nobody knew what to do. And he was, they were going to bring in a helicopter and air evacuate him, but they thought that would, he'd bring the helicopter down. So they eventually leave packed him with some wet with some wet towels and and got him to the hospital and extracted what was left in his leg. And uh, he recovered, but he not without severe burns. And this isn't uh, a really unusual incident. It doesn't occur every day, but a Google search will show you that 
it's not uncommon. And so that's really where I start this book off with like, what is this bewitching stuff? But it's way more than the weapon. My goodness. Um, Dan, no one can say you're not committed. I believe in the course of writing this book, you actually tried to make your own elemental phosphorus from urine, which <laughs> given what you just said, sounds extremely dangerous. How did that go? Please, no one try this at home, by the way. No one try yeah. this at home. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, I'm a journalist and so I'm used to writing for a lay audience. And when I embarked on a book about phosphorus, I knew I had to come out of the gate hard. <laughs> I had to, you know, kind of grab the reader because phosphorus isn't like the, the most titillating subject uh, when you when you hear it. But when you start learning about it, it becomes so. And when I was learning about it, I encountered this this episode with the alchemist cooking it out of his urine. So I thought that's a good place to start. Wow. I've got a, a lot of friends who drink a lot of beer, and I have a, a turkey fryer. I don't know if if your listeners are familiar with what turkey fryers are. I have but, no idea what that is. I can't speak for <clears> anyone else, but I have no idea what is it. A turkey fryer is like a kettle um, on a tripod, a tripod with uh, like a propane burner, and you drop a whole uh, turkey into it and you deep fry it, basically. So it's a way to cook a lot of liquids uh, fast. And I had, at the time, recently deceased, my father-in-law was a chemical engineer. And uh, he's this cranky old English guy. And I was telling him I was thinking about doing it. And he said, well, it's probably not going to work, but let's give it a whirl. My wife wasn't too happy about this. My kids were kind of excited. But uh, before we ruined my turkey fryer, <laughs> I got a hold of a, of a, of a uh, chemist who specializes in the old alchemy uh, wizardry. And he said, don't even try. A, you're not going to get close. B, you're going to ruin your turkey fryer. And C, if you do get close, you're getting close to danger because it'll combust. So I left it at that. But um, oh. guy can still guy can still dream, maybe someday. <laughs> but, but really interesting, what he said was, we don't have the earthenware. We can produce elemental phosphorus on an industrial scale through kilns to produce things like weapons, which are being used today. I mean, Russia is being accused of uh, using uh, phosphorus bombs in, in Ukraine uh, at the moment, and to use them on humans rather than as a smokescreen is a, is a war crime. But um, rather than just, just being uh, uh, a weapon, it, it has some other industrial applications. So we do we do produce it, but we produce it on an industrial scale. And to try to do it on this small scale that I was trying to do, the uh, the chemist from Johns Hopkins University here in the U.S. said, you just can't get things hot enough for long enough. And uh, and if you do, by chance, um, you're going to hurt yourself. Well, we're glad you're still alive, thanks to your friend. Um, phosphorus, <laughs> phosphorus has been part of this kind of ideal circle of life for millions of years. Um, but then with industrialization and the emergence of cities, things changed a bit. Can you tell me about that transition from the point of view of phosphorus? Sure. So, so then I'll go back to the distinction. The nomenclature is kind of tricky. And so in the book, I just refer to it as phosphorus, but there it's phosphorus and phosphates. And phosphorus is the weapon we were just talking about. Phosphates is a critical nutrient. Um, modern fertilizer is basically made up of three elements, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. We have basically unlimited nitrogen because we can pull it out of the atmosphere because air is some 80% nitrogen. 
and we have vast deposits of potassium, but there are only so many deposits of, of phosphate rock. And that rock typically has accrued over eons, over millions and millions and millions of years. And it's typically the result of dead sea life raining to the ocean floor and accreting and, and eventually building itself into sedimentary rock. And then through various forces, whether sea level change or tectonics, it gets heaved to the surface and it becomes a mineable deposit. And, and that's something that has sustained, or that is the reason, you know, Earth's population has gone from so around 1 billion 100 in 1900 to, you know, approaching 9 billion today on our way to, to 10 billion. We've, we've juiced ourselves with this, with this rock phosphate. In the natural world, before humans started tinkering with the flow, Phosphorus existed in some rocks that were just part of early Earth. Uh, they were igneous rocks. There were traces of phosphorus, and they just leached into the world, and that was a governor on life. And so that really restricted how much life there could be on the planet, and that was the case for literally billions of years. When we started getting hungry in the 1800s, we started getting desperate, and we were chasing phosphorus wherever we could find it. And that took us to places like the battlefield of Waterloo, where we mined, we being Western civilization, more specifically England, in the 1820s, mined the battlefield of Waterloo for the bones, for the phosphorus in those bones to grow turnips and wheat and everything else that the British needed. They ran out of bones, and that sent them on another chase, which took them to the western coast of South America and and the guano islands which are basically these islands of bird poop mountains of bird poop that are rich with phosphorus and after that we figured out that there were these rock deposits so so it really is the governor of life like isaac asimov said in in early 1970s it it's life's bottleneck there's no replacement for it you know we can find replacements for fossil fuels but we we can't find a replacement for phosphorus. And we've grown somewhat addicted to it in the last 70, 80 years by by uh, exploiting these these mineral phosphate rich deposits. But they're not endless. And so a day of reckoning is coming. And what's really you talked about the circle of life earlier, and that's exactly what phosphorus is or should be. It was think of a, a pasture where a cow grazes, a cow poops that grows grass, the cow grazes on the grass, the cow poops, and on and on and on. As it goes in the forest, trees grow, reach to the sky, fall, decay, and open the door to a new generation of trees. Well, we cracked that circle of life once we figured out how to squeeze phosphorus out of these rock deposits, and we turned it into a straight line. And that line runs from fertilizer factory to a farm field, and too often, tragically, to water bodies. And in freshwater, this overloading of phosphorus is causing these, these horrible algae blooms that aren't just unsightly and, and smelly, but they're toxic. And today in the States, and I think to a significant degree in Australia as well, you've got these water bodies that are unusable and they're dangerous, not just for pets, or for people who may swim in them. And when I talk about this algae, it's it's very distinct looking. It looks like green paint on the water. And if if a human 
swallows it, they'll get sick real quickly. If a dog swallows it, they can die real quickly. But there are also long-term effects. It's it's a liver toxin. And increasingly, people are worried that it's a neurotoxin associated with uh, diseases like ALS. And you don't have to go swimming to be exposed to this. The, the toxin in this algae can be aerosolized and breathed in and cause significant health problems, sometimes perhaps dastardly health problems. From bones to bird droppings to stones, we have mined phosphorus wherever it has occurred and been found in, I suppose, natural circumstances. But all of this, these are finite resources. Tell me about the notion of peak phosphorus. Are we close to peak phosphorus and what is it? Peak phosphorus is when we've basically reached, it's like peak oil, when we've reached the, the, the point where extraction is becoming so costly that the yields are going to be diminishing. So the idea of peak phosphorus is really to get people's attention to realize that life on Earth is, is basically being sustained by a, a man or a human-made battery, and and that battery is not unlimited. And so... We're never going to run out of it, but it's going to get increasingly difficult to find. And there was some pioneering and great research done by uh, an Australia, an Australian around 2011. She published a paper, you know, saying that we are we are headed for a day of reckoning. And the fertilizer industry really bristled, and they said, you know, I think some of the estimates thrown around at the time was that we could run out of easily accessible deposits by the end of this century. And the fertilizer industry says, no, we've got 300 years or 400 years worth of this stuff in, in, in proven mining reserves. Whatever that number is, you know, when you're looking at humanity clinging to this planet, that 300 years is not, not a long time. But you also don't have to run out of these deposits to run into scarcity, regional scarcity issues. Here in the United States, for example, our primary phosphorus deposit is in Florida. And we've been mining the heck out of it since the late 1800s. And the best numbers that I was able to come up with is we could be running out of our primary supply in 30 or 40 years, at which point the United States becomes dependent on some other country for its nutritional security, which I mentioned earlier, I think is a lot more critical than energy security because Mm. there are workarounds to fossil fuels. So where do we go looking for it? Well, when you factor in everybody around the world, it's, it's hard to get your head around actually that this is stuff that nobody is thinking about. And I just, as I was doing the research, I mean, not nobody, there's a lot of academics that have been, you know, plumbing this issue for a long time, but it hasn't made its way into the public. (laughs) Right. It hasn't made its way into the public conscious as, as I think it, it should. And there's no immediate solution other than to start thinking about, Hey, maybe we need to start thinking about phosphorus as a critical link in the circle of life rather Mm -hmm. than phosphorus, uh, an unlimited supply of fertilizer for food. And I mean, that's even before you get to the discussion around the ethical or not so ethical practices of extraction of phosphorus, which have been pretty poor in the past, including in the Australian region, of course, we, as you say, yeah. mined the heck out of Nauru. Uh, phosphorus in Morocco is sometimes called blood phosphorus. Yeah, 70 to 80% of the world's 
mining or phosphorus reserves are in Morocco and Western Sahara. So Western Sahara, Morocco considers Western Sahara in Northern Africa its its territory. And and prior to the 1970s, Western Sahara was occupied by Spain. And when Spain pulled out, Morocco came in. And it just so happened that a huge phosphorus mine opened right at that time. And so there's been like this low-grade conflict going on it was it was largely quelled in the late 90s but it's flaring again and the native people of western sahara tens of thousands of whom are still in tent camps from when morocco occupied the region in the 1970s the the indigenous people fled and they went to algeria and they were set up in these tents and in these camps. And the idea was, let's just wait till things settle down and you can move home in a matter of months. Well, that was 50 years ago. And there's still tens of thousands of people who are basically you know, exiled from their home. And a big driver is the fact that their homeland, as they see it, is also home to this phosphorus mine, which is one of the biggest in the world. So it's a kind of a window into the future where there the, and, and violence is flickering. I mean, th- this mine or this area in which the mine is in Western Sahara is is fortified by millions of landmines, and it's it, there's a there's a physical berm, a wall that you know is militarized, and it's the longest militarized partition in in the world, I believe. And, you know, sparks are starting to fly between the people, the native people, the indigenous people who see that land and that mine as as their as their birthright. We should say, according to Western Sahara Resource Watch, as of last year, I believe some smaller shipments were also coming to Australia. So we are oh, not really? okay. we are not in the clear <laughs> here. Let's turn to the phosphorus paradox. While we're exhausting phosphorus reserves, we're also mismanaging the phosphorus we do have, and then somehow we're ending up with excess phosphorus in waterways. What is going on here? Yeah, so so we've had relatively cheap and easy access to to this miracle grow stuff, the, this phosphorus, this phosphate. And so that has not really incentivized anybody to be very circumspect about how they how they apply it. I'm speaking from an apartment overlooking Lake Michigan. The Great Lakes are getting pummeled in some areas with phosphorus overdoses to the point that in 2014, the, the city of Toledo in Ohio, some 500,000 citizens lost their water supply because phosphorus created these toxic algae blooms. And this wasn't a case of boil your water and it's going to be fine and we'll get everything back online in a couple of days. If you boiled that water, it would only concentrate the toxin. So we had to call in the U.S. National Guard to to provide like baby formula because you can't go a day or two without water, right? <laughs> baby formula, and 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 stores as much as an hour or as far as an hour away from Toledo, Ohio, were out of water within hours of this do not drink order, and so there were pallets of bottled water being trucked in. It was literally an emergency, and this was happening on the shore of the world's largest freshwater system, and. It should have been an eye opener, but unfortunately, uh, agriculture industry. I mean, and I don't want to disparage agriculture at all. You know, I had breakfast this morning, and I'll have 
dinner tonight and I'll do it all over again tomorrow. But I need I need food just as much as that, though. I need fresh water. And and these two things are, are in conflict in too many places right now. So that's the paradox. We're running low on this critical nutrient, but we're also over applying it to the point that we're poisoning our water. Mm. Now, in terms of solutions, Dan, what are some of the ways forward here and, and how do we need to change? Well, you know, I say in this book, Devil's Element, at the outset that it's not meant to be a call to action or there's nothing prescriptive about it. We need to do A, B, C, and D, and then we'll end up in a happy place. The point of this book is that we need to look at the way we fertilize our crops differently. We need to see that there was a circle and we can, we can, we're never going to get back into perfect phosphorus balance where a tree grows, it dies, decays, and grows another tree behind it. We, we've kind of turned what was a trickle, a natural trickle of phosphorus into the living world, into a torrent. And, and there's no going back from that. We couldn't have our, our 9 billion people on planet Earth without, without phosphorus. But we can start recognizing that there are opportunities to recycle it, to reuse it, to restore that circle to some extent. And you do that in a number of ways. A couple of primary ways is looking at waste. Where I, I live in Wisconsin, that's America's dairy land. Those cows, just as much as they produce milk, they produce poop. And that stuff needs to go somewhere uh, because they're producing it every day, just like milk. And people buy milk and people don't buy poop right now. And that's what's got to change because that manure, I mean, I was talking earlier about the British, you know, using bones from a battlefield. They they saw any potential fertilizer material as as a as a treasure trove as you know food and we look at these these lagoons of manure as yuck when we should be looking at them as yum you know there's <laughs> okay. there's a lot of food bridge to too be far there, but from that. point taken yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. <laughs> but you also say that there are some innovative human toilets that are being designed with two drains to capture human waste separately yeah and process it is that right yeah, yeah, there there's there's research going on, you know, urine actually more than feces has as uh, a higher concentration of phosphorus because we, we excrete it, you know, every day and we flush it into our waters. You know, it may go through sewage treatment, but most of those sewage treatment facilities are not designed to capture phosphorus. They're built to to capture bad bacteria and stuff like that. We have technology in Hamburg actually, to um, they've just opened a uh, wastewater treatment plant that will essentially capture all of the phosphorus in the human waste stream that they release into the uh, Elbe River, and it can be used as a fertilizer. So that does two things. It, it increases water quality, and it prolongs our supply of mineable phosphorus. And on a, on a, a, a lesser scale, but not insignificantly, we're, we're learning that we can just through natural processes, just basically letting the bad stuff bake out of our waste, apply it to our fields. And I mean, mm. this isn't without without problems. It's, it's I mean, there are issues as far as what's in the human waste stream besides, you know, set aside bacteria, you know, pharmaceuticals mm. and 
metals. And, and so, so that's a concern. But these projects that are underway, like in, in the state of Vermont here, they're, um, there's some ambitious projects where they're, they're, they're P-cycling. As they call it, they're <laughs> so recycling urine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is, but it isn't. You know, it's we've gotten detached from from how how life is a circle. We are going to have to leave it there, Dan Egan. Thank you so much. Dan Egan is an author and journalist in residence at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's School of Freshwater Sciences. His new book is The Devil's Element: Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance, published by W. W. Norton. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.